I almost said Joshua 7, because that's where I thought we would be this week. But if you were here last week, it seems that I bit off a little more than I could chew. And we never made it to point four of my handy-dandy little four-point outline last week. And honestly, some folks might have been okay with that. Say, oh, shucks, we didn't have time to get to point number four. Right? Some ministers would actually have been very glad to run out of time before getting to point four last week because truly, it's a tough topic. What do we do when we're reading God's Word and we come across stark instances of His judgment and His wrath and His anger? when we come across places where He is calling for the death of lots of people. It's unsettling. And lest we think that it's just unsettling for modern folk, it's been unsettling for a long time. Biggest heretic to come out of the 2nd century A.D. was a guy named Marcion, who struggled so much with this topic that it led him to the place where he threw out the entire Old Testament. And where he taught, in essence, that Jesus came to save us from the angry Old Testament God. Because in his mind, there was no way that it was okay for God to act like the God portrayed in the Hebrew Scriptures. And if we're honest... That's how lots of folks feel, right? Even some of you in this room today and and many, many of our friends and neighbors and, and family, when they come across passages like this, struggle big time. And so my hope and my goal this morning is to give us at least a beginner's guide, right? So this is not going to be the be all end all not going to answer every question, deal with every issue, but at least to give us a beginner's guide to know how we ought to deal rightly, how we ought to deal biblically with these tough passages that we come across in God's Word. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of Scripture. We'll read Joshua 6, starting in verse 15, down through the end, verse 27. This is God's Word. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son, shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. We need some help. Oh God, would you come, even in this moment with a difficult text, with a difficult topic, and would you help us to understand it rightly? for our sakes, but also for the sake of those around us. We know that you'll do it, so we pray expectantly in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You've got an outline in your worship folder, and I would encourage you to follow along with it. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at this phrase that comes out of verse 17, devoted to the Lord for destruction. And we're going to take it in in a couple of parts. I want us to get a handle on what we're dealing with here, and I want us to start with the end. I want us to start with destruction. And so let's get a handle on what happened here. And and I've pulled together for you on a slide three verses, verse 17, verse 21, and verse 24, because here's where the destruction happens. Okay, Verse 17, we see that it is the city and all within it that, it, that is the object of this destruction. All right? Then verse 21 spells that out a little more clearly, not leaving anything to the imagination. Right? It's men, it's women, it's young and old, and it's the animals that are killed. All right? And then verse 24, finally, it's thorough, it's complete. The whole city and everything in it that will burn is burned. And so this is the first time that we see this in Joshua. The capture of Jericho, we see uh, the city devoted to destruction. But it won't be the last time that we see it in Joshua. We'll see it again in chapter 7, the city of Ai, when it's defeated, will be devoted to destruction. We'll see it lots more in chapter 10 in the southern Conquest in the conquest of the southern lands in Canaan. We'll see it even more in chapter 11 in the conquest of the northern lands. So, y'all, there's, there's a lot of folks who are going to die here at the hands of Israel, at the command of God. 
and, and that's just heavy, y'all, and that's sobering. And we don't need to pretend like it's not. And we just need to stop and say, what is going on here? How can we understand this? And when we face a big question like this from Scripture, when we come across a Scripture that is difficult to swallow, it's difficult to handle and difficult to understand, what's the very best thing we can do? Go to more Scripture to understand it. Right? Scripture is its own best interpreter. It's the best way for us to make any sense of this. And so when we do that, and we'll, we'll go to a couple of places in a moment, when we go to other Scriptures we begin to get a better handle on what is at work here and what is not at work. Because this is not indiscriminate killing. Right? This is not, as some would claim, ethnic cleansing. And it's not some knee-jerk reaction about a hot-headed, angry God who just lashes out in his anger. No, when we consult the other scriptures, we begin to see, bit by bit, no, there's a reason for this, that that there's a purpose for this. In the first place, uh, it's actually two passages in Deuteronomy that are really helpful with understanding this. And the first is in Deuteronomy 7, and and I've got these five verses, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and I've got them on the screen for you so you don't necessarily have to turn there. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, and so that's where we are, the Lord is bringing them into the land, that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burned their carved images with fire. So this isn't some rash decision. It was premeditated, which in one sense makes it even worse as we're trying to deal with it. But we begin to see what God has in mind here. That this is in fact both a means of providing for God's people, because they're going to get the land, right? And of protecting God's people from their hearts being turned away to worshiping false gods. It's a means of provision. It's a means of protection. And Deuteronomy chapter 20 further fleshes this out a little bit and helps us to see that this is something very specific. There's a very specific purpose with this that God has intended. And and there's a restriction placed on exactly where this type of thing is going to occur. So so if you were to look at Deuteronomy 20 in its entirety, you'd see a a chunk in verses 10 through 15 that spell out, all right, what happens when Israel defeats people who were outside the promised land? 
right? Well, they, they take them into captivity and they use them as labor. And what, but they don't murder them. They don't kill them. They don't uh, de- devote them to destruction. But for the people who are in the land that the Lord is giving to His people, verses 16 through 18, I've got this for you. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. And and they're mentioned again by name. Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. All right, so... It's not necessarily easier to swallow yet, but we at least see what God is up to. What's, what's He doing? He's providing for His people. He's protecting His people. He's protecting their hearts because He knows their hearts are prone to turn away and to worship other gods. And so God, in His grace and His mercy to His people, is calling for this destruction. All right? Let's move from the end of that initial phrase, focusing on destruction. Let's move to the middle of our phrase. You're to devote to the Lord for destruction. It's to the Lord that this devotion, that this dedication is taking place because He's the point. He's the point. He's worthy of glory. And ultimately, this is about His glory. Ultimately, this is about God's glory. And admittedly, here at the beginning, it might be hard in our minds to make that connection. To connect the dots from killings of lots and lots of people to to glory. But the one does lead to the other, and I want you to, to see that. Because here's the bottom line. All people, one way or the other, will point to God's glory. One way or another, every single person that God has created will bring Him glory. God is glorified in the destruction of the wicked. When He exercises His justice and His righteousness against wickedness, He's glorified. But destruction isn't the only way to be devoted to the Lord. You can also be devoted to the Lord. You can also point to His glory by being rescued by the Lord. And so that's why we have this wonderful exception in our passage here. Everything is to be destroyed except for Rahab and her family and all those that belong to her. So we can be devoted to the Lord. We can point to His glory in destruction or in rescue. And so clearly those are two very different outcomes. One is much to be desired than the other, And it begs the question, what makes the difference? 
Right? If every single person that He's created will, one way or the other, point to His glory, and we've got a couple of options here, destruction or rescue, what makes the difference? We ought to see right off the bat what doesn't make the difference. That it's not based on who you are as it comes to your own goodness or strength or brilliance. Right? It's not a matter of being the best and the brightest and that makes you a candidate for being rescued rather than destroyed. That Deuteronomy 7 passage again. If we had kept on going, let's go on a few verses further in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. It's not because of how great you are. And, and if we look carefully at this exception in this passage, we see it again. Right? So everything's to be destroyed except for, and now notice that basically every time Rahab is mentioned, except for Rahab, the prostitute. Like, I kind of feel bad for her, right? Every time she's mentioned, it's as if her name has been legally changed or something. Right? I'm, I'm so glad that I'm not known as John Mark, the, and you fill in the blank with my most notorious sin. But it just forces us to come to grips with the fact that she got rescued for reasons other <laughs> than her moral fortitude. When we're reminded of, of who this was again that got rescued, and what was her profession, y'all, then we've got to see, oh, it, it's clearly based on something else. It's based on the fact that she cried out for rescue. It's based on the fact that she saw what the God of Israel was up to, what he was doing to protect his people, and she came to the realization that she was a goner. And that her only option, the only thing that made sense in her mind, was to cry out and say, Save me. But we've got to stop just a second here. Think about this for just a second because, y'all, lots of folks saw what Rahab saw. Lots of folks witnessed what the God of Israel was doing to protect his people. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the Jordan River. They saw all this stuff. But they didn't cry out for rescue. And, and so this really gets us back to the point that I didn't get to last week. That we would be humbled by God's prerogative. That we would be humbled by what He's chosen to do. 
you know, things really come to a head in our passage today in verse 23 when, when these spies go in and rescue Rahab and her family. And I bet it really was dramatic. If you remember from chapter 2, her house was in the wall, right? And so the walls have now come down. Like I can almost even picture these spies like digging her family out of the rubble. Taking them out. Rescuing them. Saving them. And as amazing and dramatic as this visit of the spies is for Rahab, it's not the most dramatic visit. The most amazing, jaw-dropping visit of the spies was back in chapter 2 when they went in the very first place. When out of all the houses in Jericho, well, they just happened to enter Rahab's house. They just happened to enter the house of a woman for whom she'd been watching all of this. The Lord clearly was stirring in her heart and helping her connect the dots leading her to a point where she was ready to cry out for rescue. And lo and behold, here are a couple of guys, here are a couple of Israelites that just showed up at my door. And now I've got the opportunity to say, save me. I see what your God is doing. Save me. And so she cries out. And here in the midst of a really tough topic to deal with, to make sense of this destruction, we have this beautiful ray of light shining in, this, this ray of God's grace breaking in and reminding us of the big point of all of this. This destruction is hard to swallow, but you know what? It makes a pretty darn good backdrop for the grace of God to be projected against and to understand what it is that we've been rescued from. Now, I, I hope that some of you have been helped thus far with, with this part of the explanation of what's going on here. But I'm under no illusions that I've satisfied all of you uh, or answered all of your questions, and I'm, I know that what I've said so far won't begin to satisfy the questions and the struggles and the doubts of our neighbors and our friends and our family members. So I, I want to press just a little bit more into this because it's offensive to look at this, to come across this. It's offensive, right? Why do we bristle at this? What about this causes us, like it did Marcion, to say, oh, can that be right? And I want to suggest two reasons that, that we bristle at this. I want to suggest two reasons that, that we find this so offensive. And the first is that we don't know who God is. The very, very common objection that I hear over and over again, and I bet you hear it too. I can't believe that a God of love would, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it is, right? I can't believe that a God of love would send people to hell. I can't believe that a God of love would call for the killing of a whole bunch of people, men, women, and children. I just can't believe that. Therefore, it must not be true. But hang on a second. Where did this idea come from in the first place that God is a God of love? Where'd you come up with that? 
Why are you assuming that he's a God of love? Right here. He is, and it says so, right here. So if that's the starting point, it says a whole bunch of other things about God too. We don't have the right, obviously, to pick and choose from Scripture's which ones we want to believe. And it doesn't work anyway when we do, right? It doesn't work to have a one-dimensional God, a God who is only love and nothing else, because we're not one-dimensional. Think about someone that you love deeply and dearly. Maybe it's your child, your spouse, whomever. And they're in danger. Or they've been harmed. Either by themselves or from someone else. You're not a one-dimensional person. You're not only loving anymore. You're angry. You're upset. They've been wronged. Your sense of justice wells up in you because you've been created in His image. But you're not one-dimensional. Because you love, you get angry. This isn't right. This shouldn't be. So it is with God. A biblical understanding of who God is we begin to see that yes, it is not only possible, but true that His anger and His wrath flow from His love. That He loves His people means that He must express His anger. That He must express His wrath to protect His own people. Oftentimes from themselves, And that is still love. It's a jealous love. It's a, it's a, I'm not going to let you worship anything that is not worthy of being worshipped. Right? So if God is worthy, and He is, right, and He knows that, then for Him not to insist that we worship Him and Him alone and protect us from worshipping anything else, He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be loving. He would not be worthy of worship unless He jealously defended His own worth. Either he really is worthy or he's not. So this thing can be offensive if we, if we don't know who God is. Second way that it can be offensive is if we don't know who we are. Right? Because the thing that we might miss in the context of all this is um, the inhabitants of Jericho rightly deserved destruction. They did. They'd been in rebellion against God for 400 years. He'd been waiting for 400 years for their wickedness to come to a head, to come to its peak. They didn't cry out for rescue like Rahab. They shook their fist in rebellion 
against God. And I know that saying, all right, they deserve destruction, right? I know that that continues to push the offensiveness of it for some, right? Let me push the offensiveness even further and remind you of the fact that you deserve destruction every bit as much as the inhabitants of Jericho. That I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of my sin is death. So part of the offense comes from not knowing who God is. The other part comes from not knowing or forgetting who we really are. Let me give you a few final thoughts of application. Like, what do we do with this? Right, so for some, you're going to continue to to wrestle through this and and to come to grips with the offensiveness of it. And and where is it? You know, is it lack of a knowledge of God? Is it lack of knowledge of, of myself? Right? But, but some of you may have sat through this and said, well, I don't have any problem with this. Of course God needs to destroy the wicked. And, and so maybe you don't need to wrestle with this for your sake. Right? Maybe you need to wrestle with this for the sake of others. Because maybe you are fine with it. Right? Maybe you've, you've got a sense of God's holiness, you've got a sense of your sinfulness, and so you're okay with this, and you're not stumbling over this. But let me tell you, you're surrounded by folks who do. You're surrounded by folks for whom this is a huge stumbling block. For the sake of your neighbors and friends. You know, maybe you've engaged in a spiritual conversation recently as you've had one of your neighbors over for coffee or you've, you've shared a meal, you've had them into your home. Hint, hint. And, and you broach the topic of spiritual things and they throw up a roadblock, right? Ah, I, I just can't believe a loving God would and, you know, again, fill in the blank with whatever. So let me encourage you in this to take, for lack of a better phrase, a balanced approach. Okay, as we're, as we're thinking about this, and as, especially as we're thinking about this, not just for ourselves, but for others. Right? Let's take a balanced approach. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, don't feel like you have to apologize for God. We don't have to try to explain this away. Try to lessen it or soften it. Because I really think it'd be most helpful in the end if we just let it fall with all of its weight and heaviness. And it is both. It is, it's sobering, it's heavy, it's hard to swallow. Right? But it's the truth about who God is and what he's done, and he'll work with that. Right? So on the one hand, don't feel like you've got to apologize or explain it away. But on the other hand... We can't just blow off their concerns and say, suck it up, buttercup, that's just the way it is. Because that's not going to go very far. Right? Don't apologize, but, but in the same, at the same time, we've got to empathize. We've got to understand, of course this is a struggle. 
Right? This is hard to swallow. It's hard to deal with, especially if I don't have all the context of the rest of Scripture to help make sense of it. Let's empathize. Let's understand. One of the things that I did this, this week um, is I remembered that uh, there was a chapter in uh, this book by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. I said, that's got some good thinking about this. Let me get that out. Now, why do I have the reason for God on my shelf, right? It's not for me personally, right? I'm, I'm kind of okay with God and His existence, and right, that's kind of a settled issue for me, right? But I really want to know at times, eh, what are some of the big objections that people have? Why are the skeptics thinking like they are? Why are the doubters struggling the way that they are? And so I get it out and I say, oh, Mm-hmm. because my thinking has been changed, it's been redeemed, and it's in the process of being renewed and shaped by the Word and, you know, all of those things that, that happen when you walk with the Lord, right? And so I might need a little reminder at times of, hey, this is what the person without the benefit of that is thinking and how they're, they're processing, right? Perhaps you'll have some opportunities to engage with folks, even over a very difficult topic to be able to engage with them the next time they say, well, I just can't believe in a God of love who would, and fill in the blank. But we'd be able to enter into a dialogue with them about who God is, who we are, what our need is. And ultimately, because ultimately at the end of the day, what do we want, what do we most want people to realize, what do we most need to be reminded of? It's that Jesus... The only reason that any of this can all come together and make sense cohesively is that Jesus himself was devoted to destruction. Right? In our place and for our sake, the only reason that we're not going to experience what the inhabitants of Jericho experienced is that Jesus experienced it for us. And at the end of the day, that's what we most want people to see. That's why we want want to empathize with them a little bit and help them get over their struggles of difficult things in Scripture, that they would see Jesus high and lifted up, devoted to destruction in our place so that He could purchase our rescue with His very blood. That's what He did. And that's ultimately got to be the point of all this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you come? Would you help us to know you as the Bible reveals you? As fully and as completely as we possibly can with our finite minds. Would you continue to help us know ourselves and to know both what we deserve but also the reality of amazing grace in what we get because of the work of Jesus. Help us to understand those things so that, Lord, by Your grace, You might give us the privilege of helping others understand those things. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.